And Father, as we now come to your word, we thank you for your word. And we come eager to be fed, hungry to be fed. We ask that you would nourish our souls. And where we are thirsty, we pray that you would be a fount of renewing water for us. As you speak to us through your word, we pray that Christ would be exalted, that he would be glorified. We pray that we would once again see our need for him. Once again, see how desperately we rely on your grace. Show us, Lord. Humble us. Teach us. And grow us in Christ's likeness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. If you have been here like for the last month, you know I keep talking about John chapter 17. And I think today you're going to see why uh, John 17 is such an amazing chapter. Uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 17, verse 1. In fact, part 1 of verse 1. Uh, <laughs> this is not going to be our only sermon uh, looking at uh, chapter 17, verse 1, but we're going to start there today. But I think even this one verse is going to give you a taste for how incredible this whole chapter is. If there's any chapter within Scripture that might be likened to uh, Mount Everest, it's this chapter. It's the 17th chapter of John. Now, if you're going to hike Mount Everest, you don't just walk up to the base and start climbing up there. You have to fly into an airport that has maybe the shortest and scariest runway in the world. If you miss, you crash into a cliff or you go flying off a cliff. Uh, you have to fly into, into this airport. Then you, uh, you're in a town called Lukla. Uh, and then it's an eight-day minimum hike from Lukla to base camp at Mount Everest. Eight days. Uh, a lot of miles have to be covered before you get there. And as we come to John chapter 17, I kind of feel like that's what we have done, and, and that's where we are. We've come to the base camp of the Mount Everest of Scripture. It's only taken us, what, three and a half years almost, more than that actually, uh, to get to this point, to get through chapters 1 to 16. But as I noted a few weeks ago, Christina got me uh, this huge two-volume commentary set just written on this one chapter by an old Puritan pastor who, uh, he must have spent 10 years preaching nothing but this chapter. Um, it, it, this chapter is just so rich. This chapter is just so beautiful in every way imaginable. I've been so eager to get started with this chapter ever since we, we started our study of John. Uh, I, I've been so excited to take you through all the beauty that we're going to find in this chapter, but I promise you, I won't take 10 years to do it. Uh, by the time we're done, uh, I think you'll understand why I say that if there is any chapter in all of Scripture that might be likened to Mount Everest, it's this one. It's the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they often tell us about Jesus going off to pray alone. Uh, sometimes they give us little snippets of things that Jesus would pray here and there. Matthew tells us uh, that when the disciples asked how they should pray uh, at the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus uh, told them uh, you know, how to pray. He gave them what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And yet, that prayer wasn't really the Lord's Prayer. That was the disciples' prayer. That was something for them to pray, but that wasn't something that Jesus himself prayed. If we want to know how Jesus himself prayed, we might catch a glimpse of it here and there in, in the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross, for example, where he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, from Luke chapter 23, verse 34, uh, we see him praying, my God, my God, where have, uh, why have you forsaken me? Again, on the cross. Um, we see him praying uh, before Lazarus gets resurrected from the dead uh, here in John. These prayers were all very, very short. Just one sentence, maybe two sentences. 
But they are examples of things that Christ prayed. But when you come to John chapter 17, we find the single longest prayer ever recorded in the entire New Testament. And it is by far the longest prayer that we have of Jesus that he ever prayed. Uh, It's the longest one that we have preserved in the Scriptures. It's not only perhaps the most beloved chapter in all of Scripture, it is also maybe perhaps the single most important chapter in all of Scripture. The old Scottish preacher John Brown said of John chapter 17, he said, the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without a doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. End quote. John MacArthur said of this chapter, quote, in all honesty, one could be lost for a lifetime in this chapter. Its truths are so far-reaching, so high, so wide, so deep, so elevated, that it's almost impossible to extract yourself from the chapter or from any verse or from any phrase. The words are simple and direct enough, but the truths are really beyond comprehension. The best we can do is touch the edges of these great realities that are in this chapter. Similarly, one of my favorites, uh, J.C. Ryle, he said of this chapter, the chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone. There is nothing like it. End quote. Now, I could quote theologians all day throughout the ages, but they have a consensus on what the greatest chapter in all of Scripture is. And we're there. So I hope you get the point. This is arguably the greatest and the most important chapter in all of Scripture. Someone could spend their entire life studying nothing but this chapter, and they would never be able to empty this mine of all its majestic treasures. The only thing that we can liken this chapter to is something bigger than we can actually wrap our minds around, something bigger than we can comprehend. It's like standing at the base of Mount Everest. Everything else is just so small, so minuscule in comparison. Now, over the course of the previous three chapters, we've seen Jesus giving the disciples what we refer to as the farewell discourse. And in those chapters, we really saw Jesus in a way that we don't find him uh, being seen, the, the, a, a perspective of Jesus that we don't see in any other place in Scripture as he told them and as he warned them of what was going to come. He made promises to them. He, he told them that he was going away to prepare a place for them, but that he would return for them. He told them that he would ask the Father to send the Helper, the Advocate, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who would lead them into all truth about Jesus. The farewell discourse included promises of their joy being made full, of having peace, of having trouble, of having answered prayer, of having fellowship with the Father. And it ends with a triumphant promise. He says, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation but take courage, I have overcome the world. We saw Jesus putting the needs of the disciples before His own, tending to their hearts in order to prepare them, because as John told us, He loved them until the end. But as we come to chapter 17, we see Jesus now tend to His own heart in what is truly the Lord's Prayer. What He taught them in the Sermon on the Mount, how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount would really be more appropriately titled the Disciples' Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is here in John chapter 17. The prayer that fills this chapter has come to be known simply as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And as an introduction to this chapter, I want us to see why it has been given that name. After all, John doesn't call it that. John doesn't say anything about, uh, about that. He doesn't even describe Jesus as our high priest here. And yet, if we understand the Scriptures, if we understand the specific duties that were assigned to the high priest on the Day of Atonement from the book of Leviticus, we will see that Jesus is indeed acting as our high priest in this chapter, which was necessary in order for atonement to be made. 
This chapter can be broken into three main sections. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for the disciples, the 11 disciples. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all those who will believe as a result of the testimony of the disciples. Which is to say that Jesus prays in this chapter for every single Christian who ever has or ever will exist. Every Christian who has ever lived or ever will live, is prayed for in this chapter. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus savingly? It's because He prayed for you that you believe in Him. In verses 19-20, to 20, Jesus says, for their sakes, that is, He's talking about the disciples, for their sakes I sanctify Myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, I'm not only praying for the eleven, I'm not only praying for My disciples, He goes on to say, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He prayed for all the church, for all who would believe in him, that they would be set apart, united by him in their faith. The primary point that we're going to find in our text today is this. The primary point is that the purpose of the cross was the glory of the Father. Therefore, since the cross is the means that God ordained to bring salvation to His people, our salvation is also all about God's glory. Let me say that again. The purpose of the cross was the glory of the Father. And since the cross is the means that God ordained to bring salvation to His people, our salvation is therefore all about God's glory. So let's start by looking at verse 1. And this is as far as we'll get today. <laughs> Chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. When John tells us from the outset, Jesus spoke these things or said these things, he's referring to the farewell discourse. He's referring to everything that, that Jesus said over the course of the past three chapters. That one clause, Jesus spoke these things, serves as a transition now between his instructions to them that he provided in the farewell discourse to now his prayer to the Father. Everything that follows after this transition is just mind-blowing. It is amazing. We are brought upon sacred ground at this point. It's as if we are taken behind the veil of the Holy of Holies by our High Priest. Taken into the very throne room of God. Into an inner Trinitarian dialogue. Here, the most sacred place of the temple is opened up for us to enter in and see and hear. This is the ground where only the high priest was allowed to go one day a year, where anyone else would be instantly stricken down for daring to approach God as Nadab and Abihu found out. And yet our Lord brings us in, but not by our merit and not in our way, but by His merit and by His means. And so, we would be very wise to listen carefully and to, to listen diligently and observe carefully as we enter in. The Day of Atonement, what the Jews call Yom Kippur, was a sacred holy day for the Jews. The, the regulations for Yom Kippur are all outlined in Leviticus chapter 16. The chapter begins with the words, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Again, that's a reference to Nadab and Abihu. God wanted the people to know that they could not worship God. They could not approach God on their own terms. They had to approach by His terms. They were the sons of Aaron who defied the instructions that were given as to how the Lord was to be worshipped. They boldly and foolishly approached the altar with 
Strange fire is how it gets translated. And they were killed instantly as a result of them taking matters into their own hands and thinking, my ideas are as good as God's. God was not to be approached by human terms, but on His and His only. The instructions found in Leviticus deal with how God was to be approached on the one day of the year when He was allowed to be approached, the Day of Atonement. Under the Old Covenant given to Israel, sacrifices were daily presented uh, at the temple and, and sacrificed by the priests. Groups of priests would rotate throughout the year in fulfilling that duty. The tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem both had a, a very similar layout. There would be a, a courtyard, and beyond that you would find two rooms. You'd find the holy place and the place that would be translated as the, the most holy place or the, the holiest of holies, the holy of holies, the sacred place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept behind a heavy, heavy veil. That first room, the holy place, is where the daily sacrifices unto the Lord were made by the groups of priests. But on the tenth day of the seventh month of each year, the high priest and only the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and would approach the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the very throne, the very presence of God. Here the high priest would pray on behalf of the people and would present the annual sacrifice of a bull for himself, for his household, and for the priests, sprinkling the, blood's bull, the bull's blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and upon the ground around it. This was the only time, this was the only day of the year that the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies. If he came in during another time of the year, he would not come out. He'd be stricken dead. And so after cleansing and consecrating himself, his household and the temple priest with the blood of a bull, the high priest was to sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people within the assembly. Now, two goats would actually be presented and lots would be cast to determine which one of the goats would be sacrificed unto the Lord and which of the goats would be designated as what we uh, call a scapegoat. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not sure what a scapegoat is, it's a perfect definition of what is happening. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines scapegoat as one that bears the blame for others. In other words, the blame of the people had to be cast onto this scapegoat. The high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat, confessing the sins of not everyone in the world, but only of the assembly. He would confess these sins over the head of the goat. The goat would then be taken out into the desert. It would be released into the wilderness. This is a picture of the doctrine that we refer to as imputation. Imputation is crediting one thing to another. Transferring from one thing to another. It's a picture of imputation. If the sins of the people uh, were to stay on the people, they must surely die because the wage of sin is death. But if the sins were taken away from them, if their sins were imputed or, or transferred or credited to the goat, the goat could carry the sins of the assembly away from them. In all of this, the high priest would, first of all, consecrate himself. Pray for himself. He'd cleanse himself and pray for the duty of ministry that he was about to perform. After this, he would make intercession for the priests, praying for the priests of the temple who were under his care. And third, he would pray for all the people of God. Do you see that? Do you see the pattern there that the priest was supposed to follow? Consecrating and praying for himself. Praying for the priests praying for the people. Throughout this chapter, this is the pattern that Jesus follows. Throughout John chapter 17, that's the pattern He follows. He's following 
exactly the instructions that were given to the high priest. First, he prays for himself, verses 1-5. to Then he prays for the disciples, verses 6-19. to Then he prays for the entire church throughout the age of the church in verses 20-26. to If you are a Christian, if you have placed saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace, Christ even prayed for you. For you on that dreadful night. However you came to faith, whoever it was who preached the Gospel to you when you first believed, you can trace it right back to the testimony of the apostles as canonized in the New Testament Scriptures. The observance of Yom Kippur never actually did anything of real substance. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, in no uncertain terms, it's, it's very clear as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you might be asking, well, what was the point of it then? Why did God give them this, this routine, this, this thing that they were supposed to do on the Day of Atonement every year? What was the point of it? Well, it was a shadow of Christ. And blood does wash away sins. But it's only the perfect Lamb whose blood washes away sins. It was a shadow of Christ and Christ alone, only His blood could wash sin away. We would call Him the substance. We'd say that Christ is the substance and everything that preceded Him and pointed to Him was the shadow. So Yom Kippur was a shadow. That's why God gave it to them to do, to to observe what's really a shadow. When you look at the shadow of a person, are you seeing that person? No, you're not seeing that person, but you're seeing something about that person. You're seeing things that you can learn from about that person. You can see them, but in an indirect sense. We can imagine a person standing on the horizon with a bright, bright light behind them, casting their shadow all the way up to you. The shadow teaching us different things about that person standing on the horizon, teaching us that he's there, teaching us that he is coming. And that's what Yom Kippur was. It was a shadow of Christ, the true substance, the true and perfect Lamb of God, whose blood would wash away sin. As Christ is probably now entering the Garden of Gethsemane, as, he, uh, as we get into chapter 17, it's probably fewer than 12 hours until the shadows of the Old Covenant become obsolete, fulfilled as the true and perfect Lamb of God would not only shed His blood for the forgiveness of sins of His people once and for all, but He would also take their sins upon them, upon Himself and carry them away from His people. The true day of atonement was nigh. What I want us to see as we begin this wonderful and amazing chapters to see that Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, was careful to follow all of the requirements, all of the demands of the law, even down to the process of presenting the once and for all perfect sacrifice. Nobody can accuse him of not doing what was necessary in order for a substitutionary sacrifice to be made. Never once did he ever transgress God's perfect law. He upheld it even in his darkest hour, fulfilling it down to even the smallest detail in order that he may offer himself as the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. This is holy ground that we stand on as we begin to look at this prayer of Jesus. A prayer which towers above not only every other prayer in the Bible, but even the little prayers that Jesus made here and there. Jesus is coming to the Garden of Gethsemane to speak to the Father. It's as if they were speaking face to face. And in that sense, we're getting a glimpse of the type of fellowship that John told us that Jesus had with the Father in the opening words of John's Gospel when he wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. 
And the Word was God. In the beginning, He was in the beginning with God. And here at the end, He is coming to be with God the Father. And so as Jesus begins this prayer, John tells us that Jesus lifted His eyes up to heaven. Contrast that with the description that we have of the tax collector in the parable Jesus taught. At one point in His ministry, Jesus taught this. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank You that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jesus continues saying, but the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's from Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 13. One of the things that Jesus wanted us to see in that parable is the posture of the tax collector who represented the worst sinner, the most vile of all sinners, that as he approached God, he did so correctly, while the Pharisee did not. How did the tax collector approach God? With his eyes refusing to look up to heaven. Why was that the correct posture? Because he was a sinner. And he was therefore unworthy to look upon God's glorious throne. But Jesus was no sinner. Therefore, as he enters into prayer, he is worthy and he is able to lift his eyes up to heaven and to enter into this time of intimate, close fellowship and communion with the Father. Because Jesus had no sin and because he is one with the Father, Here's what you can know. You can know that you can and you should rely on what Jesus prays in this chapter. You can stand on it. This is, this is solid ground that you can stand on if you have savingly believed in Christ. Part of what being one with the Father entails is that the Father and the Son have only one will. They have the same will. When Jesus said in chapter 10 verse 30 that He and the Father are one, well, having one will is part of what that means. That's why Christian orthodoxy has never affirmed but has always denied the idea that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Uh, Jesus in the flesh had to learn obedience in the flesh. But he had to learn it because he didn't have to practice it in eternity. He didn't have to practice it in eternity because God only has one will. The Father and the Son only have one will. Give them two separate wills and you have two separate gods. Give each person of the Trinity a separate will. Now you have tritheism, ultimately. No, Jesus and the Father have one will. And with that in mind, what Jesus prays for here in this chapter is what He wills. What He wills is what the Father wills. Therefore, what Jesus asks for in this prayer, we can be 100% confident He will surely receive from the Father. No doubt, because they have one will. If Jesus is praying for things that the Father doesn't will, then he is outside the Father's will. Now you're treading on very dangerous ground. Richard Phillips notes this. He says, quote, His prayer was answered in the cross and the resurrection. It is still being answered in the salvation of Christ's people today, and it will continue to be answered until God's mercy has brought in the last of those belonging to the Son. End quote. And so as Jesus begins this prayer, He says, Father, the hour has come. Now that should be sending off bells in the minds of somebody who is carefully reading through John's Gospel. 
this has been a theme throughout John's Gospel. Almost as soon as the narrative of the story begins, back in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana, we see Jesus refer to this hour. The, the wedding uh, at Cana ran out of wine, and Jesus' mother Mary uh, urges Jesus to remedy the situation. And yet he, Jesus knows that He can't do this in a way that draws too much attention to Himself because if He does that, He'll, die, he'll be killed there. And so He responds to Mary by saying, My hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, at the Feast of Booths, uh, it's coming up and Jesus' brothers mock Him and they say to Him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works that you are doing. For if no one does anything, for no one does anything in secret when he seeks to be known publicly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And John adds his own comment after this, noting for not even his brothers were believing in him. And then we read Jesus say in verse 6, my time is not yet here. Jesus went to the feast privately. He ended up ruffling some feathers uh, with the people and with the Pharisees. And we read in chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to seize Him and no man laid his hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. We see something similar again in chapter 8 when John told us these words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple and no one seized Him because His hour had not yet come. And then we get to chapter 12, which was probably earlier on in the day, prior to the Last Supper, uh, when Jesus offered up this prayer, uh, same day. Uh, some Greeks had come to see Jesus, which Jesus recognized as a, a signification, uh, a sign that the hour had arrived. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He goes on to say in verse 27 in chapter 12, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this, person, for this purpose I came to this hour. And so all along, we, we keep hearing about this hour, this hour. It's supposed to build up a sense of anticipation in, in us. Like, what is this hour that He is talking about? And now we are here. When Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, we should see that we are arriving at the pinnacle of the narrative. We see that this hour all along had been set. It had been ordained for Him. And that with each passing chapter, it was growing closer and closer. And as it got closer, Jesus' heart would become increasingly troubled. And yet, when His hour came, He didn't say, well, this is my time. There's nothing I can do about it, so I may as well just forget about it and you know, you know, just give myself to it. Nothing for me to do about it. That's fatalism. No, rather than simply resigning Himself to it, and saying, well, there's nothing I can do to change it. I may as well just accept it. He sees it as a time in which it's most important for him to go to the Father in prayer. Keep in mind that he, in the previous chapter, in the closing verses of the previous chapter, he's just told his disciples that they will be able to pray directly to the Father. And that if they asked for anything in His name, in Jesus' name, that the Father would give it to them. And so in one sense, what we see now is that He's, he's now modeling exactly what that looks like for them and for us. What is this hour though? What, what does that refer to? It refers to His death. It refers to the events that would take place on Calvary. So what took place on Calvary? Well, you could say uh, Jesus was nailed to a cross, and that would be true. But there's more. It wasn't just another person being nailed to a cross. There had never been another person nailed to a cross who did what Jesus did. Jesus took the sins of His people on the cross upon Himself. And in exchange, His people were clothed in His own perfect righteousness. This is imputation. The righteousness of Christ being imputed, transferred to His people. The sins of the people being imputed, being transferred, credited to Christ so that we bore His righteousness and He bore our guilt 
and shame. And this is where salvation on the cross, as Jesus bore our sin, this is where our salvation was accomplished, right? It's where Christ's work was completed as signified by the words, it is finished. But what I want us to see is that the Lord's prayer here is that He would be glorified. Look at what He says. He prays that He would be glorified. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. That's what He wants. But why? Why does He want as the Son to be glorified? He says that the Son may glorify You. That the Son may glorify You. In Jesus' mind, in Jesus' perfect mind, which remained completely pure, completely undefiled by sin, the purpose of the crucifixion, the purpose of His own sacrificial death was what? The glory of God the Father. The glory of God, according to Jesus Himself, is the chief end, the primary purpose, and the intended result of His death. And so what does that mean for you and me? What does that tell us? It tells us that the primary purpose of the salvation that God sovereignly ordained in eternity past, which was to be fulfilled on that blessed and awful Friday, is the glory of God through the work of redemption accomplished by the Son. Let me put it another way. As the Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man. Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Have you believed savingly in Christ? Do you believe that without His work, without His substitutionary atonement, specifically for you, laying your particular sins on Him, that you would be lost, that you would be destined for hell, and eternal condemnation? If you do, and, and I do pray that you believe savingly on the Lord Jesus, then ask yourself, why did He save you? Why did He save you? The primary reason is not so that you would be happy. The primary reason is not so that you would be comfortable. The primary reason is not so that everything in your life would just be a cakewalk and life would be easy. The purpose of your salvation is the glory of God. If you lose sight of that purpose, let me tell you what happens inevitably. I've seen it happen so many times. If you lose sight of that purpose, when life isn't easy... If you lose sight of that purpose, when you don't feel happy, when you're completely lacking in comfort, you will begin to wonder if God is angry at you. And maybe you'll go so far as to even wonder if you're really saved. How can this happen to me if God saved me, if Jesus saved me? I've seen it happen. But if the purpose, if you see that your purpose is not comfort or happiness but the glory of God, and it is, then that means that you don't need to wonder if God is angry at you or if He's really saved you when you encounter various trials or troubles or afflictions. Let me urge you, therefore, to refuse to lose sight of this purpose. Refuse to think of your salvation primarily in terms of the personal benefits that it might offer to you. Instead, think of your salvation primarily as Christ thought of it, given to you freely for a specific purpose. The glory of God being demonstrated in your life and in your salvation. Your heart of stone has been turned to flesh in order that you have the incredible freedom to love and obey and serve God rather than being a slave to sin who only desires to rebel against and defy God. Totally blind to His love. Totally blind to His majesty. Totally blind to His glory. See, if you will primarily think of your salvation the way that Jesus did, it will 
change your entire perspective of everything that you encounter in life. The, the, the mountains and the valleys and everything in between. It'll change everything, the way you see everything in life. Rather than seeing your trials and seeing your afflictions and seeing your troubles as times when God has either afflicted you or abandoned you, rather than feeling that in those times He's not with you, if you have this mindset that your salvation and everything in your life is about the glory of God, then you will see it as an opportunity. You'll see these hard times not as opportunities to to give way to the flesh and to start doubting God. You'll see them as opportunities to glorify God in the midst of whatever circumstances you're facing. Circumstances where other people who don't know God completely lose their cool, completely lose their peace, and here you are rejoicing in the salvation that God has given you. The purpose of Christ's suffering, the purpose of His perfect life, the purpose of His perfect death, the purpose of the cross is the glory of God the Father. Therefore, Since the cross is the means that God has sovereignly ordained to accomplish salvation for His people, their salvation is primarily about God's glory. If you're sick, it's an opportunity for you to showcase the glory of God. If you're injured, it's an opportunity for you to showcase the glory of God. If you are anxious, if you are depressed, if you suffer loss, if you receive great gain, if you are comfortable, or if you are distraught, these are all opportunities for you to give glory to God. And while you might prefer something different, You no longer need to insist on having things your way. You no longer need to insist on being comfortable. God's grace is sufficient to help you endure even the worst circumstances. And that is the primary reason that Jesus has come now to the Father to pray. Jesus was about to endure Worse circumstances than you or I or anyone who has ever savingly believed in Him will ever have to endure. In fact, what He endured is greater than we can even imagine. He endured the worst of the worst of the worst of all possible circumstances for us in bearing the wrath of God against our sins in our place. And so it was that As his hour arrived, Jesus went to the Father in prayer for grace and strength to finish his race. James writes this, James chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That verse is so contrary to the flesh. I don't know if there's another verse in all scripture that is as contrary to the inclinations of of the flesh, even Christians, than that. But let me ask you this. James is telling us to to have joy when we have trials. Do you think Jesus did that? Do you think Jesus approached his trial with joy? He did. In fact, we know he did because Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that he did. And he did it because he knew that God the Father would be glorified by it. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, quote, Here he is, just before the cross. The crucial moment is at hand. He knows something about the agony and the sweat of Gethsemane. And his one desire is this. Father, enable me to go on. Give me strength to bear. Give me all I need to do this in order that your great glory in this matter of salvation can be revealed and made manifest. I have come to do that. Enable me to do it that your name may be glorified. End quote. What a prayer. What a prayer. Have you ever tried praying like that when you encounter various trials? Don't you think that if you prayed that prayer, God, give me the grace I need to endure this and to glorify you in this situation. If you prayed that prayer, don't you think that God would answer it? Let me tell you something. He will answer that prayer every 
single time. If that is the prayer of your heart, He will never decline. He will never say no to that prayer. He will answer that prayer every time because that is Christ's will for us. If you want everything that you need in order to glorify God in your life and in your salvation, He will surely provide every single time. Friends, the greatest privilege that has ever been given to any man is not riches, is not comfort, it's not even health. Try telling that to people these days. The greatest privilege, the highest calling that has ever been given to anyone is the ability to glorify God. To be used by Him as a means of God making Himself known. So cast aside your desire for anything else because anything else is lesser than. Everything else, comfort, health, riches, an easy life, whatever, they are all things that can be lost like that. Those are all things that come and go. When we have them, praise the Lord, they are good gifts. But look at the world around us. Look at how the world around us takes these good gifts from the Lord and turns them into idols. Rather than being grateful to the giver, they start worshiping the gifts. If we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus, friends, we can expect trials. We can expect to suffer. We can expect to experience rejection by the world. If you're living for the glory of God, there aren't going to be people on both sides clapping for you and cheering you on. But you get something better. You get something of eternally greater worth. Conformity to the image of Christ, which entails a better vision, a clearer vision of God's glory as we live and strive to give God glory in all things. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the only people who can do that are those who are in Christ like Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king, we can know that God is sovereign in every trial that comes into our lives, that He has ordained for our lives because He has ordained all things. Every circumstance that we face, He has given us for our growth in Christ's likeness and as a stage to demonstrate God's glory to the world. Our priest prayed for you on this dreadful night in Gethsemane. And having died and resurrected from the grave on the third day, He ascended into heaven where He now sits at the right hand of God. And you know what He's doing there? He's still praying for you. He's still praying for you to be strengthened. He's still praying that your life would demonstrate the glory of God. And so may He grant you the grace that's needed to see the chief purpose the primary ends of your life and salvation. Settle for nothing less. May He grant you the grace and the strength to endure every situation in life with the same attitude, the same mindset that Christ Himself had. Be glorified, Father. And may God alone be glorified in your life and in your salvation. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, what a daunting task it is to consider these words of Christ, to consider that our salvation is all about Your glory. Forgive us for the times when we have thought that it's all about us, that it's all about something other than Your glory. Forgive us for such idolatry we thank You that we have a mediator who stands between us and You. The Lord Jesus Christ who took all of our sins, not just our idolatry, but every sin that we've committed upon Himself. And He carried it far away from us. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the perfect sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf.
Thank You for His perfect life. We pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, that we would be grown in Christ's likeness and that we would have the same attitude that He had as He walked up to the greatest troubles that He would face, the greatest troubles anyone would face, knowing that He would bear Your wrath against more sins than we could possibly even imagine being able to count. But He did it for love. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would teach us Teach us to walk in your precepts that you would be glorified, that Christ would be made known and glorified in all of our troubles, in all of our trials, and even on the mountaintops. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.